This episode was recorded at the year ahead, an international security, intelligence and defense outlook for 2018 at the Canadian War Museum on December 7, 2017. This annual conference is organized by the Center for Security, Intelligence and Defense Studies at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. The following panel is titled Hot Spots of the World and Their Impact on Canada and features Ankit Panda, Senior Editor at The Diplomat, Barack Barfi, Research Fellow at the Washington Institute, and Milana Nikolko, Adjunct Research Professor at the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at Carleton University. Um, I'm just simply going to turn it over to our first speaker, Ankit Panda, who is a, a writer for The Diplomat, a magazine to which I've had an opportunity to contribute, and uh, uh, we welcome you. And Ankit, we're going to ask you to take it from here. Thank you so much for that introduction, and uh, thank you to the Norman Patterson School for the invitation here. It's, uh, it's really great to be in Ottawa. It's my first trip to the city. Um, wish I could stay for a little longer, but this is going to be a bit of a sprint for me. Um, so without further ado, let me just get to the Asia-Pacific. Um, I'll talk a bit about what we've observed in the region in 2017 um, and how that sets us up for next year, which um, I think unfortunately will continue to be a, a rather turbulent year. Um, so if we're looking at flashpoints and hotspots in the Asia-Pacific, um, I simply have to start with the one at the top of most countries' agenda, which is North Korea um, and the situation on the Korean Peninsula. Um, it's, it's simply been a, rem a remarkable year. Uh, 2017, I think, surpassed many experts and long-term North Korea watchers' expectations just in terms of the pace of the improvement we've observed in North Korea's military capabilities. I think the best way to maybe um, paint that picture is uh, to look at the designation system that the US intelligence community uses to track North Korean strategic missile systems. So this is a system that you might have seen in some news reports when um, you know, um, certain reporters will talk about the KN-15, the KN-14 ballistic missiles that North Korea has recently tested or shown off. So this KN system is what the US intelligence community uses to keep track of North Korea's various missile systems. So the system roughly started in the mid-1990s, and from that point, from about 1994 to, to let's say, you know, January 1st, 2017, we got through KN-1 to KN-14. Last week, North Korea tested a ballistic missile, the Hwasong-15, which is what it calls it, that the US intelligence community now calls the KN-22, which means we've effectively observed um, <laughs> seven new systems added to this, um, a designation system that the US uses to keep track of North Korean advances. And among these new numbers, KN-15 through KN-22, there are highly concerning new systems, including two intercontinental range ballistic missiles, both of which had been unseen until they were flight tested. North Korea carried out two flight tests of its Hwasong-14 or KN-20 ICBM on July 4th and July 28th this year. And just last week, it launched its largest and most powerful ballistic missile, the KN-22 or the Hwasong-15. Um, and that missile, um, is certainly large enough to range all 50 of the, the United States, and that also includes um, all of Canada. Um, although we'll get a bit to um, the 
of the Canadian situation with North Korea, because I do know that there is a debate in this country on potentially participating in U.S. missile defense, uh, homeland missile defense schemes. I know there's a later panel on this, so I won't spend too much time talking about it, um, but it is something that um, is worth noting, because North Korea has, in my opinion, this year demonstrated a credible ICBM capability. And yes, you'll see competing reports about the status of its re-entry vehicle technology and if it's um, completely mastered the ICBM, um, but as far as as far as I'm concerned, and this has been backed up by senior U.S. military officials, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, General Dunford, Strategic Commander General Hyten, have have said effectively for the purposes of military planning, it is um, we should all take it as a granted that North Korea has finally accomplished a credible ICBM capability. Um, but it's not just the ICBMs that should concern us. Um, ultimately, in the Asia-Pacific, uh, the first targets for North Korea um, have always been um, South Korea and increasingly Japan. Japan had the misfortune this year of seeing two North Korean ballistic missiles overfly its territory. Um, in the past, North Korea has overflown Japan with satellite launch vehicles, but this year, the launches on August 29th and September 14th were the first time that North Korea had flown ballistic missile systems designed to deliver nuclear warheads over Japanese territory. And uh, Japan had been planning for this day for a long time, since 1998, when, when North Korea first launched the Taipodong-1 satellite launch vehicle over its territory, which effectively kick-started Japan's interest in missile defense and its investments and um, a joint co a collaboration with the United States in these endeavors. Um, looking forward to 2018, I think, um, you know, a North Korea's ballistic missile program will continue to expand. Uh, there was um, a lot of headlines concerning this latest ballistic missile test really uh, focused on this bit in North Korea's state media statement, which said that this represented the completion of its nuclear forces. And I think some people might have taken that to mean that Kim Jong-un had found the missile that he was looking for all this time and effectively the country's nuclear forces would be complete and they would be built around the systems that we've seen demonstrated to date. I simply don't think that's true. I think North Korea will continue to advance. Um, it's exploring a new fuel set. Um, it is moving from liquid fuel missiles to solid fuel missiles. If 2017 was the year of the North Korean intercontinental range ballistic missile, I think 2018 will be the year that North Korea makes greater advances with its solid fuel program. The benefits of solid fuel in a nutshell include greater flexibility and response times, um, which increase the survivability of the country's nuclear forces and further restrict preemptive and preventative war options for the United States, South Korea, and Japan. Um, so I can come back to North Korea during the Q&A, but I don't want to spend all of my 15 minutes talking about North Korea. Um, so moving further around the region, um, I do want to talk about another hotspot that somewhat faded in prominence in 2017, but certainly was at the top of the headlines in 2016, and that is the South China Sea. Um, the Obama administration had made the South China Sea, um, where the United States has long supported freedom of navigation and international law, the non-militarization of features and the peaceful resolution of disputes, a priority um, in its diplomacy in the Asia-Pacific in 2016. In 2017, I think we've seen diminished attention by the Trump administration, and uh, combined with the government of Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte's outreach to China um, in late 2016 following the arbitration award at The Hague in which China's claims to the Spratly Group and the South China Sea more broadly were invalidated, um, I think we've seen a, a reversal of fortunes where Beijing has, instead of coming out of this um, 
of this July ruling in 2016 with um, a worse hand than it had before. Its, its hand has actually been strengthened. The Philippines also ended up chairing the Association of Southeast Asian Nations this past year. Uh, in 2018, uh, the organization will be chaired by Singapore. So I think uh, that should also condition our expectations for the year ahead. But effectively, China has managed to seize the momentum in the South China Sea. It has um, managed to successfully conclude a draft framework for a code of conduct with the um, Association of Southeast Asian States. Um, this framework, unfortunately, is not binding and doesn't quite meet the high standards that um, analysts in the United States have long been seeking. Um, but with Singapore's chairmanship uh, of ASEAN in the coming year, I think, um, there is room for both the United States, uh, Japan, India, any state interested really in freedom of navigation and international law being respected above all else in the South China Sea, um, playing a role in, in conditioning ASEAN's approach um, with China on the South China Sea disputes. Uh, I think uh, 2017 also just displayed that um, within ASEAN, the divergences that have always existed on the South China Sea, uh, recall that only four ASEAN states are actually claimants in the South China Sea, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, and the Philippines, with uh, Indonesia only having a partial exclusive economic zone dispute with China. Um, this has simply meant that ASEAN, which is a consensus-oriented organization, has been unable to successfully deal with China um, regarding the South China Sea disputes. So I expect uh, going into 2018 um, that this will be an important area to watch as well, just given the, uh, the change in leadership in ASEAN. Um, but also, I think we've seen something interesting from the Trump administration. Uh, the Obama administration's Freedom of Navigation Program, by which um, US Navy warships would um, protest excessive maritime claims in the South China Sea, drew quite a few headlines. The Obama administration only authorized four such operations between October 2015 and October 2016 um, in the Paracel and Spratly groups. The Trump administration, by contrast, has uh, ceded authority on, on the Freedom of Navigation program to Pacific Command, which in turn has increased the tempo of these operations. So instead of seeing four over the course of a year, we actually saw four operations this year in the span of five months, and we're expecting another one any day. Um, so if this tempo keeps up, I think um, that is um, an interesting source of um, a potential a source of friction with China, which continues to protest these operations as illegitimate threats to its sovereignty in the South China Sea. So that, again, is something to keep an eye on um, looking forward to 2018. Um, moving on, I want to talk a bit about the U.S.-China relationship, uh, which I think um, in 2017 was um, obviously a a bit of a roller coaster. I think um, if you think back to February when we were still waiting for assurances from the Trump administration that it would still um, adhere to the United States one China policy um, to the eventual meeting between Xi Jinping and President Trump at Mar-a-Lago in April, um, you fast forward to from there and you have some um, friction between the two countries on trade, but not really to the extent that many had anticipated given the rhetoric of the, 20, uh, of the 2016 campaign, and most recently in November with the bilateral state visit uh, by President Trump to Beijing, it really does appear that the United States and China are pursuing a path of non-confrontation. Um, I think that there's reason to expe expect this to change in 2018. Um, Early on in, in administrations, I think historically, if you look at the U.S.-China relationship early on in, in new administrations, the relationship does tend to start off rather rosy before various issues tend to bog down the agenda. The Trump administration's um, 
attention to Asia, I think, was a little bit um, disappointing for many people, especially with um, President Trump's departure from the East Asia Summit without delivering that full-throated support for the liberal international order, for freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, for the non-militarization of features. Um, so many of these issues may come to bear in the future. But really, I think what we may see now, um, as especially the US State Department um, hopefully gets um, staffed up, at least with regard to the Asia Pacific, is a broadening of the agenda with China. In 2017, the US-China agenda was entirely monopolized effectively by trade and North Korea. And it's a much broader agenda than that. It always has been um, the Obama administration's approach in 2016. Part of the reason why it perhaps didn't take as much action on the South China Sea as, as some analysts would have wanted was because of that broader agenda. Um, you know, everything concerning intellectual property rights, cybersecurity, um, also concerning um, just broader Chinese um, a naval development in the Indian Ocean and the Western Pacific, um, all of which continue to develop. Um, so all of these will be uh, worth watching um, in the future as well. And I want to briefly just talk a bit about Chinese military developments, um, China's um, indigenous uh, sec China's first indigenous aircraft carrier, second overall aircraft carrier, was launched this year. China's uh, carrier operations continue to um, expand at an alarming pace. In, in December 2016, the Liaoning, the first Chinese carrier, the converted um, Soviet-era carrier, um, ventured outside the first island chain for the first time. It um, traversed to the Western Pacific. And I think we're going to see more of that from the Chinese Navy. We're going to see increasingly expeditionary operations. Um, definitely into the Indian Ocean, where China has um, set up its first overseas military base in Djibouti. Um, but certainly, I think uh, these trends will be worth focusing on in 2018 as well as the PLAN operationalizes its new strategic concept that focuses more on expeditionary operations in the, in the broader Indo-Pacific region. And speaking of the Indo-Pacific, I do want to talk a bit about um, other broader geopolitical shifts in the Asia-Pacific. One of these uh, that we've seen in the past month following the snap elections in Japan is the Abe government's renewed interest in reconvening the quadrilateral of um, like-minded Asia-Pacific democracies. Uh, so this was an old idea that first was explored by the Japanese government by Abe uh, during his first term as prime minister in 2006-2007 that um, basically involved um, bringing together India, Japan, Australia, and the United States, uh, like-minded Asia-Pacific oriented democracies to confer on matters of regional security. And in 2007, we also had the massive um, Six Nation Malabar naval exercises that caused quite a bit of concern in China at the time. The quadrilateral has reconvened. There was a working level meeting in Manila recently on the sidelines of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations meetings. And in 2018, I think this is one of the groupings to watch. It remains to be seen if the quadrilateral can sustain momentum, especially with the United States certainly appearing um, strategically adrift in the Asia-Pacific, while we have seen more of a vision from the Trump administration uh, with its discussion of an Indo-Pacific concept, it remains to be seen how, how far this can be operationalized. And part of the reason here, again, is that the Trump administration will need to realize that the Asia-Pacific, that the Indo-Pacific is about more than North Korea, um, that there are other issues that merit serious consideration. Um, but certainly, China is watching this closely, and there is considerable room for growth um, in this endeavor at this point. Um, certainly in the realm of, of joint military exercises. One of the low-hanging fruit areas to watch in 2018, I think, is for a potential quadrila quadrilateralization of the Malabar exercise, which was trilateralized with Japan in 2015. This used to be a bilateral U.S.-India naval engagement and has since come to include Japan, but may also come to include Australia. Um, and certainly there is room for other states um, to participate in this endeavor as well. 
Um, one more thing that I want to focus on just with my one minute of time left is terrorism in the Asia Pacific. I think one of the um, unpleasant surprises for many Asian states this year was the siege of Marawi City in, in late May in the Philippines, which I think um, represented partly an intelligence failure uh, in ASEAN. Um, certainly, the Philippines authorities had received intelligence from Indonesia and Malaysia that foreign fighters um, would be planning something big um, in, in Mindanao in the southern Philippines. Um, but unfortunately, um, the Philippines was unable to act preventatively, and it led to a bloody siege with a severe civilian death toll. Um, intensifying the, the insurgency in the southern Philippines. Um, ASEAN has, in the meantime, taken steps to bolster its, um, its intra-group cooperation on terrorism. The Philippines, Malaysia, and Indonesia have started joint patrols in the Sulu-Sulawesi Seas, uh, both to focus on anti-piracy and on terrorism. Um, but certainly, uh, heading into 2018, especially as the Islamic State continues to lose its territory, lose its presence in the Middle East, uh, the specter of returnee fighters coming back to Southeast Asia especially looms large. And, and certainly the lesson of Marawi City in 2017 um, means that you know, this is a serious problem to, uh, to focus on in 2018 as well. So I'm just over my time, so I'll end there and happy to expand on any of that in a Q&A. Thank you, Anket. Uh, we're now going to turn to Barack Barfi, who uh, will speak to issues in the Middle East and North Africa. You're free to use the podium. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm a little under the weather. But uh, it is great to be back in uh, Canada. I was so excited I was going to get some original Canadian maple syrup to eat with my pancakes this morning. But I forgot I was in Quebec, and they only serve French toast. Um, I want to start with general trends and then move to the more specific. So the biggest question we have to ask in the, in the Middle East is what's going to happen to ISIS uh, now that it's lost its safe havens in Iraq and Syria? Um, <coughs> it's going to transition to more of a guerrilla insurgency uh, organization that we saw in the post-awakening phase uh, in the last decade, moving from the desert into the cities. But there is a change here. Two factors are involved that makes a difference. First of all, it has uh, an influx of so many foreign fighters that are now going to try to get home, Speci specifically those from the Western nations. Uh, we've seen um, uh, some, some of them try to get out uh, through completely legal means, through using the airports in places like Erbil. Uh, Kurdish intelligence has caught a few people trying to get back to England and, and France. So that's a problem that if they get smuggled back into their home countries with uh, tasks to carry out attacks or even to develop networks. Secondly, what's very important is that this organization moved from, uh, was a state, was a state in, in most functions, which means it raised significant sums of capital that it now has to use any way it wants. So this poses a great threat to uh, to the, uh, to the international community. But we don't know what will happen uh, with ISIS down the road. Will it try, will it, will it, um, will it have a, will it try to uh, learn from its mistakes, the lessons learned as, we, as the military calls it? Uh, I'm not so sure. I doubt it because this, the, the ISIS is a, a Zarqawis organization, Abu Musa al Zarqawi, who founded the organization. And he was dead set against any type of softening of violence, despite uh, letters from uh, Zawahiri 
and uh, I think Abu Yahya Libby, uh, the number three uh, uh, member of Al Qaeda at the time in 2005, 2006, um, just the ISIS and, and Zarqawi just completely focused on any type of violence anytime. So I'm not confident that they will learn any lessons from their mistakes, whereas groups such as um, AQIM have tried to learn from their mistakes. Al Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. This group, uh, I, I wrote an article a while ago that said that they have a soft touch the way they deal with um, their the, the civil, not only the civilians but their enemies, and we see this by letters that uh, uh, Nasr al Khayshi, the former leader of AQAP, sent to the leaders of AQIM following their takeover of towns such as Timbuktu and Mali, where they failed to uh, where they, they they failed to ingratiate themselves with the civilian population. So uh, to sum up with ISIS, I don't think there'll be a lesson that's learned. I do, however, think that they still pose a, a localized and international threat. I think we can't take our eyes off them, given that, they, uh, that they, they're, they, they still, they're still very important. And we shouldn't forget that ISIS has uh, some type of relationship with the Syrian regime. It's not symbiotic. But uh, the regime is, has very, very good uh, intelligence and maybe even uh, operatives in ISIS at not only mid-levels but senior levels that they can use and influence in the future. Uh, as we know, the, the, the Syrian regime used ISIS as a crutch and a foil uh, to paint the uprising as a, as a jihadist uprising, not a civilian one, and then they facilitated the growth of ISIS. So if, if, if the Syrian regime feels that it needs the jihadists to play the jihadist card again, uh, they might. Um, the next important point is uh, the failed states. <coughs> Excuse me. Libya, Syria, and Yemen, uh, what will happen uh, with these states? Uh, will they be able to get back on their feet? or not, I'm, I'm not optimistic uh, in all three. And in countries like Yemen, we're, we're seeing the complete disintegration of the state following the uh, death of uh, former President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who uh, worked in tandem for a while with the Houthi rebels that he fought in a series of five wars from 2004 to 2010, I believe. He made common cause with them to take power from his, his successor. Uh, President uh, Abid Rabo Mansour uh, Hadi. Um, so uh, Yemen is in is in uh, a lot of trouble, and is in, how does that affect us, or how does it affect the, the, the Middle East and the international community? Two ways. First of all, Saudi Arabia, which I'll get I'll talk about a little later. It's on the border with Saudi Arabia. We've seen the Houthis use uh, ballistic missiles supplied by Iran to attack Saudi cities, so they can bring. Uh, their campaign to Saudi Arabia, and um, <coughs> secondly, AQAP, Al Qaeda in the Radium Peninsula, um, because of the, sh the, the shift from fighting uh, from fighting AQAP to working with the Houthis to uh, uh, fighting the Southern uh, the Hadi and his uh, Saudi and uh, Emirati backers. The focus has been taken off AQAP, and what does that mean? It's been able to take control of cities like ISIS did and AQIM did in the Maghreb. So we're seeing a lot of self-governing by the jihadists, and 
Um, I, 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 AQAP never ceases to amaze me. They, they are so efficient, so good, the way they deal with people, uh, the way they deal with situations. So uh, this is a, a big problem because of Yemen's instability. Libya, I don't see anything good coming out of Libya. Uh, the, the, the factions are too weak. Um, uh, they can't take the fight to across the country. Uh, what what the the Sir desert uh, separates uh, Hiftar's uh, operation uh, uh, dignity from the Misrata's operation dawn, and I believe uh, since since the Arabs took uh, Libya in the seventh century, no country, no no invading army has moved from east to west across Libya. Uh, to conquer the whole country, and, and we saw this during the um, 2011 civil war when the rebels couldn't move out of Benghazi to take um, to take Tripoli. They got stuck between Brega and Sirte in the desert, and what fell Gaddafi was the Misrata Zintan alliance in the western province of Tripolitania. <coughs> so uh, th these, these organizations are too weak, and logistical supply routes make it impossible for them to take the battle to the other side. Another important question is who will rule the Arab world? Um, Saudi, uh, traditionally it was Egypt, first with Nasser, who everybody loved, then Sadat, who w won the 1973 war. He was the hero of the crossing of the Suez. And, um, and then Mubarak tried to carry their mantle, and he did for a little while until he got old and his grandson died. Um, we, we don't see CC uh, able to take that mantle. The, co the country is really decimated on two fronts. First, the economic front. Uh, it just doesn't doesn't have any money. It can't support 85 million, 90 million people anymore in, in the bloated bureaucracy. Tourism is down. There's no there's no FDI, um, and it's basically relying on handouts from Saudi Arabia, uh, the Emirates, before Kuwait. But they pulled it. They, they realized that Egypt's a bottomless pit and now the World Bank. The Saudis have tried to step up, but they have not been able to succeed, which I'll get into a little bit later. Um, the Sunni-Shi conflict, very important. I think it's the most important uh, conflict in the Middle East. Uh, sum up in my, right now, Iran is winning. And then the Arab-Israeli conflict as well, which I will get into. And finally, the Trump presidency. Um, Trump is a classic pre-World War II Republican isolationist. He is completely he, he completely has withdrawn from anything that has to do, not only in the region but most, but the world. Um, he does not want to get involved in any nation's uh, internal affairs. Uh, the, the 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 Reagan shiny uh, shiny city on the hill where we radiate American values uh, has pretty much receded in the Republican Party. In, in the in the wake of the failure of nation building in Afghanistan and in Iraq that President Bush undertook. So his foreign policy is basically transactional. If you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. He does uh, <laughs> he does rattle a stick against the uh, Iranians, but it's all rhetoric. He hasn't done anything uh, against the Iranians or their proxy Hezbollah, which which uh, uh, at the beginning of the administration, people said, uh, his advisor said, we put on notice. So, the 
the most important conflict in the Middle East is no longer the Arab-Israeli conflict. It's the Sunni-Shia conflict. And the, this, it basically pits the Saudis against the Iranians. And the Saudis, the Saudis in the, it's very interesting what happened. So the, during the, the Nasr era, when the, you know, it was pan-Arab nationalism, it was a threat to most countries. It, it fell monarchies in um, Yemen, uh, Iraq, uh, and Libya. <coughs> and it threatened also the other monarchies in the Gulf. So at that time, uh, the countries like Saudi Arabia tried to uh, make common cause with um, countries like Iran, which were also you know, uh, monarchies that didn't like Nasser. But what happened is there was uh, the, 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 the Islamic Revolution in Iran brought, up, brought to power theocratic Iranian uh, Shi'i um, uh, theocracy, <coughs> a cleric, uh, clerical regime that tried to export the revolution. At the same time, Islamism was coming into vogue because of the failure of Nasser's pan-Arabism in the wake of the 1967 war. Um, which, which led to uh, re re reawakening of Islamism, and the Saudis led that by uh, by exporting their their um, strand of Islam, which is a very puritanical strand. Wahhabism is a, was a, uh, historically a very marginalized uh, uh, school of Islam, uh, but it came to the fore with the Saudis, and the Saudis propagated it, and it basically is intolerant of any other. Of anybody else, it's not a Wahhabi. Not only the infidels, but also the the, the Muslims, which includes the mo one of the most important enemies is the Shia. So that's what brings us into this Iranian-Saudi uh, conflict. And the bottom line is what's happening in one sentence. Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, the son of the king, is not winning the war. He has no political experience. He's in way over his head. Every move he's made has been a complete disaster from Yemen to um, <coughs> this corruption drive that he has right now, to his 20, 2020 vision. Um, why has, why has uh, Saudi Arabia failed beyond bin Salman? It has no experience in leadership in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia has historically thrown money at problems, and I'll give you a great example. It was in 1983. 1983, America was in... Uh, in, in we moved into Lebanon. Uh, there were bombings of the uh, Marine barracks and the embassy. The CIA believed that a cleric named Mohammed Fadlala, Shi cleric Mohammed Fadlala, blessed the uh, the bombers and was the uh, spiritual uh, guide of a burgeoning group called Hezbollah. So the CIA decided we were going to do a soprano operation and clip him. But the CIA didn't have the money for it, so they asked the Saudis to fund it. They planted a car bomb outside his house and went off. It killed some people, but it didn't kill him. So Fadlullah was mad. The Shia were mad. The United States said, okay, maybe there'll be some uh, repercussions, but we're, uh, we're a big kid on the block. We can take it. The Saudis couldn't, were, were afraid. So their representative went to Fadlullah, and he said, they said, uh, we're very sorry about what happened. We'd like to help some of your organizations. Where can we send the money? That's the bottom line how the Saudis work. They just funded, they funded operations. They funded people. They funded organizations. They have no experience in, in any type of leadership, and that's why they're failing now. Also, a big problem is in, in Saudi Arabia is, historically, Saudi leadership has been a, focused on two things. 
the family and consensus. The family was the most important thing. Um, you always had to, uh, you always had to work within the family, and you always had to come to a consensus, and that consensus was based on seniority, the seniority of the princes. With the ascent of bin Salman, that whole model has unraveled, and that is one of the reasons why he, he, he's, he's, all his moves just utterly fail, because they basically gave him power one of the most important countries in the world with billions of dollars in oil, hundreds of billions of dollars of oil wealth to a 32-year-old kid. And then he plays with another 36-year-old kid named Jared Kushner, and they try to solve the problems of the Middle East, such as coming up with uh, peace solutions to the Arab-Israeli conflict. <laughs> um, another reason why the, the Iranians are winning, they're more dedicated to their proxies. Uh, they, they have played up Hezbollah they're willing to support their proxies to the tilt, whereas the, the Saudis aren't. A great example is, is Hariri, the, the prime minister who resigned, who didn't resign. Let's put that aside. A couple of years ago, the Saudis were frustrated that their, uh, their, their money wasn't making any inroads in Lebanon, so they cut off all aid to Lebanon, which means when you cut off aid, you, 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 your proxies uh, aren't able to, to, to breathe anymore and, and to survive. <laughs> so they haven't been dedicated there. The same thing in, in, in um, Syria. The Iran's all in with these militias from countries. Not just his, it's not just Hezbollah. It's not Iraqis. It's, uh, it's uh, Shia from Afghanistan, Pakistan. They bring them from all over. Whereas the Saudis, they're in one day, they're out the next day. In 2015, they supplied, they upped their ante uh, with weapons to their proxies in Syria. But, uh, and that helped them take the province of Idlib, which was a big threat to Assad, President Assad of Syria. But they haven't followed up with it. And now they cut off a lot of uh, weapon supplies, which has, uh, again, suffocated their proxies. So the, the, the Iranians are just much more dedicated. Um, Yemen was a complete mistake, the, invasion, uh, the, the, the operation in Yemen. Um, you can't trust Yemenis. And this is something that Nasser learned in the Civil War from 1962 to 19... Uh, 67, the imam, uh, the religious leader of uh, Yemen, was overthrown by uh, pro-Nasser uh, pro officers, so he funded them, he, he backed them, whereas the Saudis backed the, the royalists, uh, the supporters of the imam, and the, uh, the Egyptians learned very quickly that the, Egypt, the, the, the Yemeni fighters they had, they would call them um, royal monarchists, it's Jumlukiya uh, in Arabic. Uh, which means they fought on the on the on the on the uh, Republican side by day, and then they supported the Royalists at night. So they got very frustrated with them. The Saudis didn't learn their, the, the lesson. Uh, the Yemenis are, are, have uh, not proved to be uh, very good proxies. The war is just getting they're just getting stuck deeper and deeper in the quagmire. You have UAE Emirati um, special forces running all over the country, trying to fight the Houthis. Uh, who are supported by uh, Iran, and it's just not working. So we see uh, some up here that the Iranians are, are just so ahead of the game in in the in this uh, Saudi um, Iran. This is the game they're playing, uh, the struggle they have with the, with the Iranians. To move to the Arab-Israeli conflict, so we've seen um, in the last few days what happened with uh, Jerusalem, what Trump did, and you, I, I have to say that. 
if there was ever a better time to do this, I, I, I couldn't find it because the Arab world is so focused on its own problems and Iran and Saudi and bin Salman trying to find his way and Egypt trying to just dig itself out of uh, the abyss that nobody is going, none of these leaders are going to get up, stand up and start attacking Israel and calling for uh, jihads and intifadas and marches. These, these leaders do not want these protest marches spinning out of control into anti-regime uh, pr uh, protests that could lead uh, to serious trouble like we saw in 2011 with the Arab Spring. Uh, so what's going to happen is uh, in these countries, Egypt, uh, Jordan, the Gulf countries, the Ministry of Religious Affairs gives the imams guidance, the, 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 pre the clerics and the preachers guidance about what, to, what, what their Friday sermons sh uh, should say. And I would be highly surprised if they, if, if there were many incendiary marks about Jerusalem, more than just mere token ones. Um, we haven't really seen a lot of blowback today, today, but today's Thursday. We have to wait till Friday afternoon, so around like one o'clock. So 13 is at about 6 a.m. when we all wake up. We'll see what really happened. Um, I think the, 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 the three countries that are, are going to be most at the forefront of this Jerusalem thing are Iran, Turkey, and Pakistan. And these are three non-Arab countries. Why? Iran is, always leads anti-American, anti-Israel chants. Uh, 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 Turkey, Erdogan wants to be the leader of the Islamic world, wants to be a leader of the Islamic world, excuse me, his, his Islamist orientation is very important, and he has made the most uh, incendiary remarks. He's threatened to cut ties with Israel about this. He's, he's vehemently criticized Trump. Um, <coughs> so I think that these countries will be the ones leading the way. Um, and basically, the Arabs are no longer interested in the Palestinians. I mean, when uh, foreign uh, dignitaries who meet with bin Salman say he doesn't really make an, a point of, uh, of, of uh, talking about the Arab-Israeli conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's, it's not high on his agenda. The Iranian um, uh, problem is, 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 uh, is much more important. The Qatari issue, which we'll address soon, is, is much more important as well. And finally, um, a couple things before I get to the last point. This 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 move was classic Trump. It's a lot of smoke with no fire. Why? He he said that Israel that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. He didn't say that all of Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, West or, or East. He just said Jerusalem, which can be parsed and defined. Secondly, he is not moving. He's not building a new embassy in Jerusalem. The, 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 the American government owns land in West Jerusalem in a neighborhood called Talpiot that was earmarked for the embassy. They're not moving on that to, to strike ground. And third, if he really wanted to do something today, he would have moved all the staff to the consulate in West Jerusalem and said, that is where the embassy staff is going to work out. But he didn't do any of that. They're, they're sitting in, 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 in Tel Aviv. And finally, he signed another waiver that they're not moving the embassy to Jerusalem. So this was just another big <coughs> Trump statement. Just like he, when he said he didn't, want, he, he didn't support the Iran deal, but he didn't decertify it, he sent it back to Congress. So it's the same thing here. A silver lining that I see with this is 
though, that the, um, the Americans have a bargaining chip here that they can give the Palestinians. Uh, they can, the, a future president that needs to ingratiate himself with the Palestinian leadership, the Palestinian people, the Arab, the Arab world, can say that, that, uh, the, that Jerusalem is an issue for the two sides to decide, uh, not for the United States. Which, um, which, which takes us back to what the traditional American approach was. Uh, so he, 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 it's, it's an it, American policy can be changed. It, this can be used as a bargaining chip. Um, we've seen this in the past. In 1974, President Ford uh, gave, I think, okay. So President Ford gave um, Yitzhak Rabin uh, letters, uh, sent, sent him a letter saying, uh, he looks favorably about Israel remaining in the Golan Heights. That letter means nothing when the United States is persuading the Israelis to give up the Golan Heights uh, 20 years later. So I think that's about it. Um, just uh, the Iraqi Kurdish issue real quick. The, the Kurds over-calculated. Barzani didn't understand what he was doing. He got it over his head and misinterpreted uh, messages that the United States sent him in, in May. Thank you very much. Thank you, Barack. And our last speaker is uh, Professor Milana Nokoko. Thank you very much. I feel privileged to speak in such a dedicated audience, and uh, I also feel lucky to discuss just a small region I have, uh, inter-ethnic relations and the conflict zone in Ukraine and Russia uh, development. So, uh, talking about the hotspots in the world, uh, particularly talking about Eastern European countries, Russian-Ukraine relations will be in the center of the attention for upcoming year. But the first point that I would like to start with is the recent announcement that Putin is running for presidency again. There is no surprise. For the first time, uh, Putin is the leading candidate for the presidency, leaving behind you know, some minor candidates. We have no chance probably to get to the presidency in in Russia, and we support between 75 to 86 percent of the Russian population. I think we have to admit that next president of Russia, if it's, not, if it's nothing dramatic, uh, tragic, it didn't happen, going to be President Putin again. And this Ukraine and the Western only has to realize it. So the person who they're going to deal with for in 2018, and probably for another six years, going to be Vladimir Putin. For Ukraine, it's important to understand that the negotiation regarding Donbass going to be uh, he will, will go with Putin, continue go with Putin. So, t talking about the Putin presidency in future, we have to realize who going to be behind him. It's most important question. He is a very well in regards of the person who surrounded him, but also distance from the uh, domestic problems of Russia. So if you look closely on Russian domestic politics right now, there is an ongoing fire on the cabinet of ministers leading by President uh, by Dmitry Medvedev. But at the same time, Putin is taking distance and uh, he's the the, in, in his pursuit of the geopolitical strategy of Russia, he is distancing himself from all the local problems. Um, look, just looking at the ongoing election process in Russia, we can see that some interesting shift developed recently. So uh, his 
close advisor on ongoing economic reforms in Russia is Kudrin again. Kudrin was his economic minister in between 2001-2011 and was quite successful minister. He, having in mind the liberal, liberal attitudes in reforming of Russian economy. If Kudrin will be leading a uh, cabinet of ministers of Russia, we might see some liberalization with West, and definitely some steps could be uh, indicated right now towards some softness in relation with Western countries. Uh, another question is, uh, can we find some trends in Putin activities in the last 10 years? And I believe so, regarding post-Soviet space in particular. In 2007, on Munich conference on security, Putin was pretty clear regarding his, uh, his unacceptance of extending NATO uh, with extending European Union, with enlarging the European Union, towards them moving clo closer to the Russian borders. And he proceeded with this clear message of not accepting the extending of the NATO close to the Russian borders. In 2008, we see that a strong reaction of Russia in development in Georgia, it was developed in a short Russian-Georgian war, it was quite successful in military operation in Russia. We also see that Putin step-by-step step, uh, modified and modernized Russian army. Uh, in 2008, started with very dramatic changes, leading by Minister of Defense Serdikov. Russia cut the um, amount of non-professional um, military personnel in army and remodernized it significantly. By 2017, about 70. 4%, at least that's uh, what Cabinet of Ministers stated recently, of Russian military supplies and military uh, equipment was modernized already and they completely, they're going to complete the modernization for 2020. It's active and successful military modernization. And I believe that this combination of soft power and strong in military involvement in some radical cases, like it happened in the eastern part of Ukraine, Russia will continue their active policy of presence in post-Soviet space. So I believe there is not much of mm, surprise on this uh, side as well. In 2018, this model of hybrid influence on post-Soviet space, most of the cases gonna probably will, will, will continue uh, we will continue to see that. Uh, talking about particular in Ukraine-Russian relations and mediation and negotiations regarding Donbass region and the future of the conflict zone, that's uh, I believe that we can see some development, and at least uh, we can see f at least four possible scenarios. My way, I think it's around four possible scenarios of development conflict situation in eastern Ukraine. <clears throat> uh, they're all scenarios on the table, in fact. Uh, there is no decision made so far on the western part or Ukra Ukraine or Russian part regarding this the one possible or dominated scenario. So most likely, uh, the conflict will stay in the gray zone, just based on what we analyzed 
um, the activism uh, in the activities what could be spotted in the area in the last two years. <coughs> With a slow development, with some casual casualties, with some some um, occasional fights, uh, with a frozen slow development, uh, and probably also militarization of Ukrainian armies and support from West. I believe it's going to to continue. Another possible scenario: uh, rapid Russian expansion and Russian, rapid Russian military operation. Is it likely? Uh, I believe not. Not. Russian is under pressure from the West and Russia is suffering from the sanctions, but the same have a strong uh, support of Putin. But their interest to the conflict zone in Russian society has declined recently. So I believe Russia will probably not go this route until it's going to be a strong provocation from the Ukrainian side. First, and successful Ukrainian military operation. What are the chances of Ukrainian army to move and to conquer the entire territory of so-called LNR, uh, Luhansk National People Republic and DNR, Donetsk People Republic in a short period of time and actually stabilized the situation there. Uh, we could evidence some activities of special forces of Ukraine or some unknown special forces in terms of uh, assassination of the, some leaders of, uh, of, of these of the rebels of forces in the last three years we saw that some leading in mythological in some case combats were assassinated but in the same time uh, Ukraine probably wouldn't be able to conquer the territory fast and secure their position in a short period of time under the pressure of Russia plus uh, talking about the military forces of um, of the rebels, it's also not clear to understand how many they can involve in, in the fighting. So approximately about 10, 12,000 right now in the military troops of both Luhansk and Donetsk, but they also actively involved reservists and also the freedom, so-called freedom fighters, the people who come to fight from Russia, without even uh, talking about actively involved Russian army forces. So, uh, regarding the frozen conflict with the possibilities of engaging United Nations mission to operate the frozen conflict and this long process of return these territories under control of Ukraine, I believe in the long-term perspective we might consider it as a one uh, strong possibility. Uh, but we have to have in mind that this process is going to take a long period of time. We were enthusiastic and very um, positive looking at the development and the conversation between special representative of the United States, Kurt Walker, and his counterpart, aide of President Putin, Vladislav Surkov, in recent year. From 2000, beginning of 2017 until nowadays, we can see more and more active engagement in meetings between these two and discussion regarding the mediation of the conflict. Uh, but in the same time, the recent announcement made by Walker, 
show us that it's about 10% of points or just three positions out of 29 when the two parts could find some similarities. They start very important process of exchange of military personnel and this is one of the, uh, yeah, one of the good news both for Ukrainian societies but also for, for the uh, Russian counterpart as well, <clears throat> that mili military exchange, military prisoner exchange could have happened before the Christmas and that's a, a definitely provided us with some positive attitude regarding the, this um, crisis regulation. But at the same time, the major uh, topics of discussion, they are definitely putting the sides apart. So how large UN mission gonna be, what the status of their representatives, where gonna stay, and um, how they gonna uh, reorganize their duties. It's something, it's all gonna be discussed probably in ongoing year, but solution, e, solution will be probably, will be postponed till the uh, upcoming future. <laughs> if international community, Russia and Ukraine will come with decision, of introducing United Nations mission by the end of 2018 will be a miracle, I believe. Uh, regarding Canada's involvement and Canada's activism in the area, I would say there is a definitely can, the support of Ukrainian forces and the, the active involvement in the training and unifier will continue. Also, we know that Ukraine and Canada have multi-level support from the different type of communities and uh, working actively on the political and level. Uh, but uh, talking about implementation of the uh, in UN special mission in, in, in conflict zone, Canada probably will stay, stay back a little bit in the activism and the support of Ukraine because having in mind the Russian counterpart, the Putin will stay as, as we all realized in the power and there is a definitely some it's supposed to be some room for negotiation regarding who and how uh, gonna uh, going to manage the, the different type of uh, mediation of the conflict. I would leave uh, Canadian section and Canadian involvement in the conflict to the uh, part of questions and answers, and I just want to summarize again a few major points. So, having in mind um, that Putin continue to have a strong support uh, on domestic level, also actively engage different type of influence in post-Soviet space. I believe, generally speaking, the Russian domination post-Soviet states among post-Soviet states will continue. The combination of soft power, economic engagement, uh, active migration policy on post-Soviet space, particularly Central Asian uh, countries, together with the uh, strong model of influence, what we can see in Eastern Ukraine, also have the spots of frozen conflicts all over the space. We're talking about Transnistria, we're talking about Abkhazia and South Ossetia, and now uh, Donbass, with a strong representation in, in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh as well, so in Caucasus. Russia will continue the model of Presenting dynamics, the general dynamics for the for the this geopolitical uh, region, ge ge the geopolitical position in this region. Uh, so, soft mechanism gonna be 
I believe going to be used more in upcoming year than the, the, this harsh mechanism of uh, in, uh, redirecting national attitudes of the post-Soviet space. But at the same time, uh, Russia very much interested in development or redevelopment uh, or re normalizing good relations with European countries, first of all. And we can see some major symbolic steps were taken in Russia recently in this direction. So in terms of uh, Crimean Tatus in Crimea, there was some release recently happened. There was definitely some negotiation regarding the uh, conflict, uh, looking for possible conflict resolution in, in Eastern Ukraine. It's a good sign as well. Uh, and plus, I still believe I'm a kind, I am, I feel positive regarding the engagement of Kudrin in the active, uh, in, in the present election campaign of Vladimir Putin recently. So if we'll see that the uh, doves will take care of the hawks in, in Russian um, internal domestic power regulation, we might see some progress in terms of this relation with Western countries. But it's a positive scenario for sure. Probably too much. Yeah. Thank you. That was a panel discussion from the year ahead, an international security, intelligence and defense outlook for 2018 recorded at the Canadian War Museum.